Hi, I'm Kurt Decker, and you're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, let's roll. Let's go. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to this episode of ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley, director at the Southeast ADA Center. Listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form at adalive.org. Today, we'll talk about the protection and advocacy systems, which are usually referred to as PNAs in the disability rights community. PNAs are federally mandated programs funded by the Administration on Disabilities, which is part of the Administration for Community Living. Uh, in total, there are 57 PNAs in the United States with at least one PNA system for every state and U.S. territory. PNAs work at the state level to protect and advocate for the legal rights of individuals with disabilities. PNAs are dedicated to the ongoing fight to defend the personal and civil rights of people with disabilities. PNAs empower and ensure that people with disabilities have the right to make choices, contribute to society, and to live independently. To discuss the important work of PNAs, we're very fortunate to have as our guest today Kurt Decker, who is the founder and executive director of the National Disability Rights Network. Kurt was also the former executive director for the National Association of Protection and Advocacy Systems. And as a guest host for today's episode, we want to welcome our own Rebecca Williams, who I'm a little biased, is a brilliant technical assistance specialist <laughs> with the Southeast ADA Center. Kurt, welcome to ADA Live. Becky, I'm going to turn it over to you. Uh, thank you, Barry, and welcome, Kurt. Uh, Kurt, I want to say I'm so excited about having you as our guest today. I've been working in the field of disabilities for 40 years. I'm familiar, somewhat familiar, with what protection and advocacy uh, organizations do and have referred to PNAs um, throughout my career, but I really don't know anything about your history. So I think that'd be a, a good place to start. How and why was the, the PNA system created? Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for uh, letting me talk about uh, our, our network uh, throughout the country. It is uh, a system that's now been around for over 40 years. We were created um, thanks to the expose of Geraldo Rivera of the Willowbrook Institution. Cool. This was a 5,000-person uh, institution on Staten Island in New York, with the largest institution for people with intellectual disabilities in the world. And the conditions there were horrific. As a result of that expose, and shows you the power of media, Congress um, created the Protection and Advocacy Program in the mid-70s, and it came uh, fully uh, into being in the late 70s uh, with a mandate to investigate abuse and neglect. However, quickly after our creation, uh, people with disabilities, their family members, realized that now there was this legally-based advocacy system, and so they came to us with a variety of problems. And so we continued to this day uh, working in institutional settings, trying to close them down and get people into the community, but also work uh, on the, all the issues affecting people with disabilities. One other thing I would say is in that initial uh, 
developmental disability PNA created in the late 70s, we have added eight other programs uh, to make sure that we are now a cross disability program. So anyone with a disability can come to the PNA and if they fit our case criteria, can get assistance from us. I remember that Gerardo, uh segment or expose or show that uh, I, I was just appalled at the horrendous, horrific conditions. Um, so that's interesting that that's how you guys came about. I think Barry mentioned that the uh, protection and advocacy systems work closely with other disability related groups, uh, particularly the state developmental disability councils, sometimes known as DD councils, uh, and the National Network of University Centers for Excellence in Developmental Disabilities, Education, Research, and Service, which is a big mouthful. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about these collaborations and why they are important in the PNA work? Absolutely. As I said, uh, the Protection Advocacy Program is really kind of the legal part of the disability framework of services and programs. And so it's very critical that the PNA in each state and territory work with a variety of other disability organizations, you know, both consumers groups as well as family groups, um, and our partners uh, created by the Developmental Disabilities Act, as you said, the uh, councils and the USEDs, but also we work with a variety of other uh, disabilities, our friends in uh, the Independent Living Center movement, we need to have that uh, co coalition and that collaboration to make sure the full range of needs of people with disabilities are met. We can't do everything. We have limited resources. We have case priorities. Um, and often that means we have to turn down people who are very deserving of our services, people we could help if we had the resources. And so we have to have this network of support in the community to make sure that somebody can pick up um, the issue and hopefully have a positive impact on that person with a disability. So you're, you're here, Kurt, um, representing the National Disability Rights Network. And we're also focusing this show on the state protection and advocacy systems. So my next question is, does the National Disability Rights Network have priorities that each of the 57 PNA systems focus on at individual state levels? Or does each PNA get to decide for themselves sort of what their priorities are and what they may address? Well, hopefully both. NDRN uh, is the membership association, voluntary membership association of the PNAs. So I don't have any control over them. Uh, that uh, uh, oversight comes from the federal agencies that fund them. And uh, our statutes do require that every PNA set their own priorities within their state. They must go through a process of hearing, listening to people with disabilities, hopefully throughout the state regardless of where they're located, regardless of their income levels, hopefully reaching out to underserved and hard to serve people to really get a sense of what are the issues in that state. I like to also uh, identify uh, issues on a national level and send out things for them to think about and to consider. A good example, for, uh, a recent one was we decided that Amtrak had uh, not fulfilled their 20-year obligation under the ADA to make uh, their services accessible. We filed a complaint with the Department of Justice. The Department of Justice uh, basically sued Amtrak and just the last couple of months settled the case and we've created a victim's compensation fund where people who could not access Amtrak stations 
because of inaccessibility can now get uh, some kind of reimbursement. And that was a, a, an issue where I asked my people to go out and survey those stations, which was the basis of our complaint. So hopefully it's a partnership where they have their local priorities that they must establish according to the statute, but then I can hopefully direct them on issues. When I discover uh, that a lot of PNAs are working on the same issue, that's when I try to bring aggregate that information and try to make a, a policy argument here in Washington, but then across the country, that this is a real serious issue facing people with disabilities. Oh, so it sounds like there is some some collaboration there. And I actually was just reading my, uh, I don't know, weekly or however often it comes out, my newsletter from NDRN, and I didn't realize you guys were so involved with this Amtrak settlement. So that's, that's great to know. You guys, the NDRN, provide training to the state PNAs, but then the state PNAs also provide training. Are there, is there any sort of, I mean, how, how is that training geared? What sort of training initiatives do state PNAs have or does the NDRN have? Well, again, it, it is a, hopefully a very robust training effort. We at NDRN enjoy a fair amount of federal resources to provide training and technical assistance to the, the agencies. And we then do a variety of things from meetings, uh, now mostly virtual, uh, but also webinars, direct one-on-one -on -one technical assistance, answering questions, and provide a, a variety of training, everything from how to help our litigators become uh, more astute, but also board of directors training. Most of the PNAs, as you know, are private nonprofits. Um, we also do a lot of financial training to make sure that PNAs are spending this very precious federal money accurately. And then at the local level, PNAs again work collaboratively to provide training themselves, possibly provide uh, some legal rights training when other disability organizations are, are doing a, a conference or a statewide conference. So it's, it again is a combination of uh, a lot of hopefully good uh, training coming from the national level that they then also participate at the local level and make sure that that information is getting out um, to the full range of the community. Thank you for that explanation, Kurt. ADA Live listening audience, if you have questions about this topic or any other ADA Live episode, you can submit your questions online at www.adalive.org or you can call the Southeast ADA Center at 1-404- 541-9001. And now, a word from our sponsor. The National Disability Rights Network, NDRN, is a nonprofit membership organization for the federally mandated protection and advocacy systems and the client assistance programs for individuals with disabilities. As the National Membership Association, NDRN has aggressively sought federal support for advocacy on behalf of people with disabilities and expanded P&A programs from a narrow initial focus on the institutional care provided to people with intellectual disabilities and facilities to include advocacy services for all people with disabilities, no matter the type or nature of their disability. To learn more about the important work of NDRN, visit their website at www ndrn.org. Welcome back, ADA Live listening audience. 
Kirk, I've got a lot of great information from you so far, but I feel like there's still a lot of questions I have. The first one for the second part of our show is, do protection and advocacy systems tend to focus only on one area of the ADA, such as focusing on Title II complaints, which would be state and local government entities? Or would a P&A look at uh, individual rights, such as an, one person has a complaint against a grocery store? because they would not allow them to enter with their service animal? Well, as I said earlier, uh, we, went, we were created initially around uh, looking at institutional abuse, but very quickly uh, that expanded to all of the issues facing people with disabilities wherever they live, reside, work, uh, go to school. And as a result of the additional resources that we received from different funding programs, there really isn't any issue uh, affecting people with disabilities that we aren't involved in, again, within our certain priorities. So yes, we do a lot of government oversight and try to make sure that the ADA is fully compliant. And we have learned that the ADA is not self-enforcing. There has to be constant vigilance to make sure that it really uh, is benefiting people with disabilities 30 years after its original passage. But we are involved in many individual cases. We provide a lot of non-legal advocacy as well, uh, monitoring and investigation in a range of facilities, nursing homes, group homes. We enjoy a very strong access authority. Congress gave that to us back uh, in our initial forming, and then it has only uh, grown over the years, which allows the PNA to go into any facility, school, or workplace to make sure that the person is uh, receiving the services that they're entitled to and are not suffering from abuse and neglect. An incredibly powerful tool that makes us very unique, I think, overall uh, as to most uh, other federal funded agencies. Now, I have to say I have no legal background or training, but my understanding is that class action lawsuits are lawsuits that are filed on behalf of a class or group of people who all say a particular right, civil right, was was violated. Do the protection and advocacy councils participate in or file class action lawsuits? And if so, can you give us a, a couple ideas of some of those examples? Absolutely. Again, the PNA system to this day still enjoys the right to provide full range of legal services uh, on any issue, including class actions. And that is a very powerful tool. We represent thousands of people with disabilities every year, but after a while, when you realize the same case is coming up over and over again, and agencies, programs, services are not changing, it's very critical to be able to uh, aggregate those situations and bring a class action, which allows us to challenge policies and the services of the state or of a private agency, to really make significant change. So we're not constantly repeating the same case over and over again. And we are very fortunate that authority has not been taken away, been removed from other uh, federal uh, legal agencies and the PNA system to this day still enjoys um, that very powerful tool. We have brought class actions in just about every kind of setting, certainly against school systems, in jails and prisons, against state refused to downsize large institutions, um, and uh, just about any kind of entity that consistently you know, violates the rights of people with disabilities. And when we can show that pattern, we can then develop uh, hopefully a very powerful class 
case that would uh, change that that dynamic uh, for the better of our clients. I know when I've been doing some of my technical assistance through the Southeast ADA Center, I've I've seen some of these class action lawsuits that some of our states have done. Uh, Florida comes to mind, uh, as you mentioned, with Department of Corrections. And, and so I'm a little bit familiar with those. Well, because, because we do so much work with now with people with mental illness, and unfortunately in this country, uh, we tend to put a lot of people with mental illness in our criminal justice system. And so the PNAs have to be very active in those settings to try to provide not only mental health services in those settings, but hopefully convince corrections departments that these people do not belong in that kind of uh, a setting. And you're right, Kurt, that is extremely important work. And so I'm glad that the PNAs are, uh, are, are working on that. So Kurt, I have another question that's sort of like legally based. Um, I, I understand that many PNA councils may participate as a friend in the court brief, also known uh, as a, I might not pronounce this right, <laughs> amicus curia. Yes. Uh, can you explain how that works? Well, unfortunately, we don't have the resources to bring all of the legal work that I think is necessary out in the community. And so we do rely on other partners, other legal entities who will get involved uh, in disability cases, sometimes private lawyers, sometimes uh, a uh, uh, an entity like uh, the Bazelon Center or the Center for Public Representation, or sometimes our friends at the ACLU. And if that case is moving through the courts, it's very important that we uh, come in with this friends of the court brief that really emphasize the disability aspect uh, of, of the case, if it's not directly a disability case. Or if it is a case on disability, often there's limits uh, on what you can say in a brief. And so an amicus brief allows other groups, including NDRN, to come in and expand the information so that the judges, when they are reading the, the briefs and making their decisions, get a fuller picture of the impact uh, that this case is going to have on people with disabilities. We judges are, yeah, are can be difficult. And unfortunately, I think some judges share the stigma um, that exists in our country on with people with disabilities. So anything that we can do to educate a judge who's coming to a disability issue for the first time is really critical. Thank you very much for that uh, explanation. That certainly uh, increases my knowledge. So Kurt, as you are probably aware, you know, there's 10 national ADA national network centers and, you know, we worked to, to provide information about, about the ADA and we often refer to protection and advocacy systems. So one of my questions to you is, do you see a way that the ADA national network could help support the work of the protection and advocacy systems? Oh, absolutely. I was very happy back uh, after the passage of the ADA, and I was lucky enough to be one of the lobbyists on that program. Didn't know I'd still be around 30 years later, but uh, it was very good to see uh, the funding of the ADA centers around the country to provide that information. As I said earlier, the uh, no law, and especially the ADA, is not self-enforcing. So there has to be a combination of information out to uh, not only the disability community, but to the business community as well, about what the ADA requires, make sure that they understand it's a balanced act, it is, it is something that is, uh, was compromised and uh, is a reasonable uh, law, and then uh, you need the PNA system to actually be the, 
the group that comes in and, and uh, really pushes uh, a, a business to change if they're being uh, resistant uh, to the requirements of the ADA. So um, there really needs to be that um, synergism, I think, between the information and support that you provide uh, and, and the legal advocacy that we can uh, come from behind when people realize that things just aren't changing the way they should. Um, I would uh, hope that, uh, first of all, uh, thanks to this type of uh, podcast, that all the centers uh, are aware of who the PNA is in their state. Uh, and sometimes we make that difficult. We have a, a branding problem. Uh, I've tried to get our folks to do be disability rights X state, uh, and there's about 35 that do that, but then there's a few that have some interesting names, which might make it a little harder to find them. So number one, figure out who, who all the PNAs are, um, and then um, be, be, be very ready to refer uh, folks who are calling you for information and, and are indicating that they're having a problem to the PNA, being aware that we do have uh, uh, priorities that we set and also resource issues. And so I would, you know, be, um, you know, let people know that we exist, that we're available, but just be clear that it may not necessarily mean that their case will be taken. And we have to always make a judgment as to whether there's really merit. You could be a very strong referral source for the PNAs. And also, I think, again, be uh, available to let people know you know, just the limits of our work. I work with the PNA to fi find maybe additional resources in the community that could pick up when we can't uh, necessarily serve that individual. Great, great. That's good to know. Um, and of course, as, as with you guys too, I think we, the ADA National Network, does a lot of referrals out. You know, this this agency might be able to help you. That agency might be able to help you. I guess my question is. What might be appropriate, uh, an appropriate referral to a state PNA, and what might be something that we shouldn't refer to? Should should we just refer to when it seems to be a systemic, a Title II possible discrimination, or should we go ahead even if it's just, even if it's a individual discrimination? And and typically, I'm thinking of when there's not a center for independent living that may be able to help somebody. And we may think, oh, well, maybe this, the, the state PNA can assist. Are there types of referrals we, we might want to stay away from? I think I would err on the side of uh, referring um, any of your cases if you think the person really needs help. I know we have focused a lot on our legal resources. And as I've said, um, we are very fortunate to still be able uh, to be, have the full range of legal uh, remedies available to us, but we also uh, encourage our PNAs to have a variety of other lower level interventions. We pride ourselves on being able uh, to get involved with the person with a disability wherever they are in the system. So maybe it's not going to end up as a legal case, but we might be able to negotiate. We may be able to give them information about what their rights are so that we can uh, help them become their own self-advocate. This happens a lot with parents in the education system. We, we do, as I said, a lot of monitoring and investigation. So it's, it's a really a continuum of services, and we encourage the PNAs to make sure that they can you know, do all of those things, not just a group of lawyers, but, but a group of advocates and lawyers. Now, I will say this, it's very nice to have the power of litigation hovering over uh, one of our advocates who can often say to a, uh, as you said, to a school, to a business, 
you really need to resolve the situation. Because if you don't, we have lawyers uh, that we can you know, call and bring into the situation. So you might want to uh, settle the situation uh, right now, uh, easily and quickly, rather than get involved in a much more formal and possibly expensive operation. So having that continuum with the legal uh, resources at the end of that continuum really allows us to be able to make many, many positive changes well before it gets into some kind of adversarial situation. So I, I would just encourage you to refer um, any of your cases to the PNA. You know, at our end, through our information and referral staff, uh, decide whether it's something that really uh, uh, can become uh, a full-blown case in our network. Well, that's good to know that uh, the PNAs could look at a, a, a small uh, case, individual case you know, depending on the situation, or uh, at least then perhaps they could refer to an attorney or somebody that maybe ought to assist that individual. It's really good to know that. So I, I appreciate that. Um, you mentioned that, you know, the state PNAs are, you know, private nonprofits, and I think there's maybe board of directors involved. If someone is interested in getting involved or supporting the work of their state PNA, is there a way they can get involved? Is there something they can do? Absolutely. Um, as I said earlier, first of all, there's the priority setting process where PNAs do uh, a very public, either every three years with maybe intervening years, where they will publish or, or put out uh, newsletters and requests for comments. So people um, in the community uh, ought to be looking for that opportunity to come in and actually talk uh, about what the issues they're seeing and what they would like the PNA uh, to prioritize. Um, as an important case. And as you said, we do have not only boards of directors, um, which are volunteers, uh, and we also have uh, a PAMI, Protection Advocacy for Individuals with Mental Illness Advisory Council. Uh, these need to be populated. We want a broad uh, group of people uh, within the state, both geographic and racial uh, and disability diversity. And so uh, there's uh, often a, a good opportunity uh, to actually become a volunteer in the PNA uh, network as a board member or an advisory board member. And it's very important that we get the broadest amount of support uh, from the community to, to um, be the governance uh, of the PNA and make sure that we really are uh, responding to the needs of, um, of, of people with disabilities. And we don't always want it to be the well-known disability advocate or director of a program. We really want to get involved, you know, the full state geographic background uh, to, on our boards and our advisory councils to make sure we're, not, we're hearing what's really going on even in the furthest reaches of the state. And I have one last uh, question. You mentioned earlier in our talk today that there's the, there are now eight programs in the PNAs. It originally started kind of as a developmental disability issue, but maybe just for our listening audience who may not be aware of, of the eight programs, would you mind just telling us what those are? I would be happy to. Um, what I find interesting is that the, the structure of the PNA system, this legally based advocacy program with access authority, which was created in the late 70s, really not changed over these last 40 years. What has happened is we've been able to uh, take that model and begin to expand it to a variety of other uh, populations and issues. So quickly in the 80s, um, we uh, were able to add a client assistance program, which represents 
clients of vocational rehabilitation, regardless of their disability. So that was the beginning of us broadening beyond uh, people with intellectual disabilities. And then in the mid 80s, we got the mental health program, which uh, brought in uh, brought us to representing that very vulnerable population. In the 90s, we've got a program that expanded to the entire disability community, sensory and physical disabilities. And then over the the, the next 20 years, we took the opportunity when Congress was looking at a particular issue. And so we added a traumatic brain injury program, a voting access program to make sure that people with disabilities can vote privately and independently. We saw the need for assistive technology. And so every PNA in the country receives funding to look at the assistive technology issues for people with disabilities so they can enjoy the benefits of this incredible, uh, you know, a burgeoning of, of all kinds of devices. And then most recently, we added a program which I think is absolutely critical. It's uh, from the Social Security Administration, and it has the PNAs going out and looking at the 8 million beneficiaries of Social Security who have a representative payee, someone who's been appointed to manage their money and, and to uh, basically take care of them. And what we are finding, we're now about year three of this program, Unfortunately, we are finding uh, many, many cases where representative payees are not uh, performing their duties appropriately, not spending the money properly, sometimes stealing it, and worse yet, really not putting people in good situations. So it's really brought us out into uh, parts of the community that we have never seen before. It's critical to make sure that this very vulnerable population has someone coming up for the first time in decades to look to see how they're being treated. So it's, it's been trying to uh, convince Congress that there is a role for a PNA type model in just about every single issue out there. We're looking at veterans. We're looking at people in juvenile justice facilities. We want to do more with special education. We want to be uh, advocates of Medicaid managed care. And so we have been lucky to add these programs to our already existing system, but there's a lot more to do. Thanks, Kurt, for that explanation of the eight programs uh, of the PNAs. I had no idea you guys did such in-depth work. And I want to thank you for sharing your time and insights with us and explaining the wonderful work that the Protection and Advocacy Systems do and National Disability Rights Network. Well, thank you for the opportunity to participate. That's great. Th thank you, Kurt. And, and thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, ADA Live listening audience, for joining us for this episode. As a reminder, you can submit your questions and comments for this episode online at adalive.org. Get access to all ADA Live episodes on our website at adalive.org. All episodes are archived with streamed audio, accessible transcripts, and resources. ADA Live can also be found on the SoundCloud channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live to your mobile device podcast app by searching for ADA Live. If you have questions about the ADA, you can submit them anytime online at adalive.org or contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And remember, those calls are always free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center. Our producer is Celestia Rosda with Beth Miller Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, 
Marsha Schwanke and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the movement for improvement. See you next episode and be safe, everybody.